Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Rob Observations. I'm your host, Rob Liefeld. I have been writing and drawing and producing comics for 34 years. We talk comics, we talk pop culture, we talk movies, we talk television. We're going to get right into it today and there are many topics that we're going to cover. Uh, the, the one we're going to kick off with is is so, like it just tickles me that this needs to be addressed, but based on all of the hubbub that was uh, being passed around yesterday on social media when some of this news broke, I felt like this is this is great. Again, we have we have we have an issue that that has facts that you can historically um, back every 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 factual aspect of this up with. But there are those who want to rage against the machine, and in this case, the machine is truth. The machine is truth, and we are talking about fourth wall breakage. Who broke the fourth wall? Who did it first? Why does it matter? Why do we care? <laughs> That's what I think. Why do we even care? But so funny enough, as, as you guys have noticed, and you guys, I come at you trying to explain my passion. Uh, there's no gatekeeping going on here. I started this podcast first and foremost because I realized through the eyes of some family members, younger family members, nephews, that they just didn't know anything about comics history. And it's dangerous because the world we live in now, as you all know, it's 24-7. It's discussed all the time. It's discussed mostly in the realm of politics, but I've seen it also in sports and entertainment. And it's this lens of, frankly, people rewriting history. There's this new agenda to post a page and make your opinion a fact. And if you can get one sliver of some sort of maybe fact to apply to your opinion, then maybe you can make your opinion stronger because it seems like it's more real when in fact it's just the way you want things to be, not the way things are. And I've seen this across, I mean, so many different uh just just spectrums. I mean, there, there are so many realms that this is covering. I've covered this before. I mean, it's not just my sons. It's an entire generation of kids who are in basketball camp who are like, oh yeah, man, Michael Jordan, he couldn't take today's uh, players. Uh, you know, this idea that Tom Brady, because he has more rings than Joe Montana, is actually a better uh, quarterback than Joe Montana. Well, I actually think Joe Montana... Of the San Francisco 49ers, a team I learned to hate because he absolutely owned and destroyed my team, the, the LA Rams, um, regularly in the 80s and 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 just just I mean basically branded his name on on them in in regards to how much uh, Joe Montana's uh, San Francisco 49ers ruled the NFC West and owned my beloved Rams. Like you you get to respect someone who owns your team as much as he did. And the idea that he is somehow not as good as Tom Brady because Tom Brady um, has a place in a different time, a different system, different rules. Tom Brady is great, period, end of story. Tom Brady is great, but the rings alone to him, to me, don't elevate him over uh, somebody like Joe Joe Montana who would get hit by much bigger, faster, uh, stronger guys. with, 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 and, And when I say get hit, I mean literally get hit. Like in a way that you're not allowed to touch uh, quarterbacks, especially receivers, in this day and age. But it's this: these people will grab anything to create the narrative that they want to be their own, and and without historical context, 
We can have an argument about any quarterback or any NBA player or baseball player. I mean, my baseball friends are like this summer, you know, the, the, I don't I don't watch baseball until the playoffs. It's it's a fun sport to watch in the playoffs. Too many games in the regular season. If I get bored and there's one on, I'll I'll, I'll click it on. But my friends who are obsessed with baseballs and st- and stats, they talk about these these pitching stats. These these um you know it, it, it's like it used to be that a no hitter was a lot more special than it is now. But but and so then finally you hear that oh they're investigating the balls. Maybe there's some crazy juicing and. Whatever their whatever liquids and, and and substances that's it substances they're putting on the balls you know bears investigation and they're gonna, and they're going to do it within the season well why because uh, it, it feels as if this era is wiping out some of the speciality the specialness of previous eras look technology plays a part into all this um, and and I mean you know in regards to if you have a favorite, you're going to find a way to make that favorite, um, to, to back up why that is your favorite, when in reality, most of the times, what we like is based on opinion. The fourth wall. Who broke the fourth wall first? If I was to tell you, the people that I remember in comic books, when I started reading them, and again, my my fixation on comic books was mostly newsstand-oriented. That was my distributor, uh, uh you know, the uh, the way that I received comics was through markets, the spinner rack, and then later the direct market opened up for all sorts of reasons. We had comic book specialty stores, and I went to those. And early on in the 80s, because by 1981, I am absolutely once a month, because I'm not driving, I'm having a bum rides, or I'm taking day-long bike rides, and uh, I can only haul a certain amount of comic books back with me, you know, on my on my on my bike on the way back, especially if I want them to be in anywhere anywhere resembling nice condition. So I'm going once a week, once a month, minimum once a month minimum in the early '80s. Getting a getting a neighbor, get, getting getting a a family member, an uncle to uh, you know to drive me. If I knew that I was going to my uncle's and aunt's in Fullerton, well, they were closer to that comic store in Fullerton than I was. So I'm like, hey, maybe we, you could take me over here, uncle. And my uncle would be like, yeah, sure, no problem. Boom, I'd go in, I'd swoop in, get some comics, you know. And uh, that, that that's how I operated because, you know, I didn't start driving until 1984. I mean, I, I was a young kid in high school. I didn't turn 16, holy shnikes, until like 1984. So anyway, comic books. There was black and white comics. There's independent comics. I remember reading a book called Cerebus. It was a funny animal book. And you're going to find that a lot of your fourth wall breakage was happening in funny animal books. And maybe we discount those books. Maybe we downgrade them because they're funny animals. They're not superheroes. Certainly Howard the Duck in the 70s was revolution. Howard the Duck as a comic book was a big freaking deal. It had big name talent. It had Steve Gerber. It had Frank Brunner. It had Gene Colan. These were big, big names at Marvel Comics, and Howard the Duck was kind of a bit of a kind of an intellectually funny satire. I knew it grabbing it. I knew like it was saying something different. I was glued into the world and the politics because my parents had the TV on all the time. The the newscasters of that 
of that day, the Walter Cronkites reading us the news. I mean, you got to understand, I'm born at the end of the Vietnam era, in the middle of the Nixon, you know, Watergate. I remember all that stuff. I remember him getting on the plane and leaving. So politics was was big back then. It was on the TV and they'd interrupt your programs. So if Howard the Duck had something to say and it was political, satirical, about the world we lived in, about the conditions, about inflation, about gas prices, whatever, I understood it. But Howard the Duck, this, you know, trapped in a world he never made, what's he doing with the humans? And, and why, you know, do, do some women find him so ridiculously attractive? He's a duck. He's a mallard. Well, he would break the fourth wall. He would talk right at you. Uh, Marvel, a couple of years back, put out a really nice trade collection of Howard the Duck. It's really fun. And if you, by chance, could get a hold of it, you would dig it. You would, you would, you would dig it. It's really well done. But he broke the fourth wall. He looked right at you. He talked to you. He talked to you sometimes on the cover. So as far back as far, fourth wall breakage, it was happening way before Deadpool. Way before Deadpool. But yesterday, they announced the She-Hulk series that Marvel is making for their streaming service, uh, their streaming platform via Disney. They said they're going to embrace the fourth wall breakage that She-Hulk did in 1989. 1989 is when John Byrne attempted to make She-Hulk relevant again. Her original Savage She-Hulk series had been canceled. Uh, It didn't run but two and a half years and it just didn't get the traction, and it was kind of a middle seller to a low-tier seller, and they canceled it. It was a big, so much hubbub around She-Hulk number one when Stan Lee and John Buscema launched the, the first offshoot of the Hulk with, with Jennifer Walters needing a blood transfusion that she got from, her, from her, uh, her cousin Bruce Banner, and that blood transfusion changed her life forever, becoming the, you know, becoming the She-Hulk. And it was exciting. It's a cool book, cool, cool comic. I bought every single issue. I loved the direction, but uh, I could tell towards the end the downgrade in talent in, in pencilers and inkers. You definitely knew as a kid when where the good talent was found. The slicker lines were on the higher selling books. But John Byrne takes over She-Hulk in 1989 after it's been canceled for probably six, seven years. Six, seven years. And he, uh, his whole gimmick is that She-Hulk breaks the fourth wall and talks to us and looks right at us. She tears through panels. She walks into other comics. It He had such a good time with it. It's very funny. Um, now, mind you, he had done a very straightforward version of She-Hulk in the Fantastic Four when he had her, She-Hulk, replaced the thing in the Fantastic Four for many years. It was, very, it was a fun exercise getting She-Hulk to step in for the thing. And... Uh, and John Byrne did a very straightforward. Um, she was very much in the Fantastic Four world, you know, fighting galactic nemesis and threats alongside Reed and and Sue and and Johnny, and and sometimes alongside Ben because he'd wander in and out at the time. But uh, he also did a graphic novel that people loved in 1985, beautifully illustrated, and uh, it's got some funny quips. She definitely had a sense of humor, but she wasn't looking right at us and talking at us, the viewer, yet, in the way that John Byrne would then elevate her to this fourth wall-breaking status. And it was part of every issue, sometimes every page. He was having a good time. It was a different muscle. You could tell he liked flexing it. The book looked great. I think it was slightly better drawn than anything that he was doing at the time because he was loving it so much. And that She-Hulk collection, got they got an omnibus of John Byrne's She-Hulk that came out last fall, and people just went nuts for it. I've got it. I love it. It's beautiful. Again, it's funny. And John really uh, 
you know, played on some of the lame, uh, uh, some of the, he took some of the lamer uh, Marvel characters or what he b- believed were, were lamer, Razorback, uh, a Spider-Man villain, or uh, or the, 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 you know, the orb, the orb, um, part of the uh, a Defenders storyline. He really took some of the weirdest stuff that Marvel had to offer and he put it through this comedic lens. And She-Hulk was definitely a humor book and it had fourth wall breakage, a lot of it. But by no means was that the first mainstream exercise with the fourth wall breakage. Funny animals aside, Cerebus, which was a cool little like medieval fantasy book about, you know, a little aardvark who could talk and have sex. And Cerebus had quite the the uh, interesting life. I mean, Cerebus did riffs on Wolverine. He did riffs on Moon Knight. It was a, also a satirical book. So, so you had... Animals like aardvarks and Howard and a, and a duck breaking the fourth wall in the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s. But in 1982, a guy whose name we don't mention often here because he had tremendously impactful. His name is Keith Giffen. He broke out at Marvel doing a extended run on, on the Defenders that everybody my age was digging. He, he was very much uh, drawing like Jack Kirby. And uh, we've mentioned this before on kind of our episode where we discuss homages and people with influence and how they would take other styles. And to this day, no one's ever done Kirby better, in my opinion, than, than Keith Giffen was doing on those Defenders issues. He then left for DC and did the acclaimed run on the Legion, which made the Legion one of the most popular comic books of its age. So popular, in fact, it had a spinoff. And he did the spinoff. He did the offshoot, the higher end, the the the, the higher cover priced, nicer paper, more stories, more art of the Legion in in the eighties. I mean, the Legion really took off with Keith on doing uh, sharing the stories with Paul Levitz. They were listed as co plotters, and uh, and later on uh, down the line, shortly after that, in nineteen eighty two. So let's 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 get it on the calendar. Nineteen eighty two. In the issue of DC Comics Presents, where Superman would team up with different heroes, Keith Giffen did that issue and he introduced the Ambush Bug. Ambush Bug. Weird, I know. I know it sounds weird. Ambush Bug. He would go on to become a very prominent character at DC Comics in the 80s. Especially the mid-80s, mid to late 80s. Ambush Bug uh, was a guy who wore this green suit with the long yellow antennas. He could teleport and not do much else. He was a tremendous screw-up. He was a very bad supervillain, bad at being a bad villain, who then tried to go into the superhero line, the superhero business, and he was terrible at it. So he's the whole idea is he's, he's really bad at all of it. But the popularity of Ambush Buck was such that they gave him a miniseries. Ambush Bug got his own series by Keith Giffen with a follow-up called Son of Ambush Bug, okay? The, these, these, the sequel and the first one, based on the first appearance, was because he was popular. People liked him. Why'd they like him? He broke the fourth wall. He would look right at you. He would mock you. He would mock the characters. He would mock the situation. It was his gig. It was the first time that I'd seen a mainstream uh, character break the fourth wall and talk to us. And when I say he was, he was mainstream, he was popular enough to get not just one miniseries, but two miniseries. And, uh, and Ambush Bug 
was a known quantity in the DC universe, at which point uh, Keith Giffen was doing the stories and all of the art on all of the ambush bug appearances across several years. And his whole gig was breaking the fourth wall. That was what ambush bug did. That's what he became known as and no one else was doing it at the time. Howard the Duck, Howard the Duck was gone. Cerebus was a kind of a fringe independent comic. It wasn't the best-selling independent comic, and independent comics, by and large, were always trailing the big two publishers as it, as it was. But Ambush Bug, green, very definitive. No nose, just eyes, mouth, these giant antennas. He wore this costume. Very striking visual, and very striking name, Ambush Bug, right? So, debuts in DC Comics Presents in 1982, gets his spinoff series, 83, 84, 85, 86, he's around, um, he's prominent, he's breaking the fourth wall. By the time uh, that Ambush Bug kind of cycles out of popularity, he had really left his mark again as a guy who would turn, you know, do the same stuff, all the same stuff that She-Hulk was doing, walking into different comics, tearing through pages. Keith Giffen got there first. He got there in a very prominent fashion. Now, breaking the fourth wall again, it's not, you know, Joker broke the fourth wall in an issue of the celebrated run of Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers, and Terry Austin in an issue of Detective Magazine. He turns and talks right at us. It's the fourth wall break was something that had been instituted. But Ambush Bug was the biggest, brightest, boldest of this time. And at this time, by this time, you've already Googled Ambush Bug. A-M-B-U-S-H Bug, okay? But Keith Giffen wouldn't stop there. Keith Giffen also created a character in the pages of a book called Omega Men, called Lobo. Lobo would go on to become this incredible fan favorite. Lobo the Last Zarnian. He is, uh, Lobo's an ass-kicking space bounty hunter. That's who he kind of evolves into. And Keith Giffen is also writing those stories. And this is now late 80s, early 90s. Lobo. Lobo's back. Literally. And the cover, in case you were wondering, of Lobo's back is in fact the back of Lobo. Um, Lobo, Keith really liked this fourth wall muscle that he exercised, that he became, I'd say, masterful at on Ambush Bug. Two miniseries featuring Ambush Bug and maybe another special. This is the minimum of what you got, but that, when I, when I bring it all back to is it got number one. That's Ambush Bug number one, the sequel, you know, Ambush, another Ambush Bug number one. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. They were splashy. You were aware of them, especially, again, mid-80s. Keith is so good at this that he applies this same muscle to Lobo. Lobo starts breaking the fourth wall, starts regularly talking to us, cracking jokes, informing us, the reader, what's going on in his comic. Keith Giffen loves breaking the fourth wall. He goes on to do numerous Lobo projects, too numerous for me to mention. They all became more satirical, bigger, over the top than the one before. And it's great. And they're amazing. And I love it. I'm such a Keith Giffen fan. And you know what? He went on to do a, a series for, for for Image. A creator-owned series called Trencher. And I'm pretty sure Trencher breaks the fourth wall too. But I can't be certain. But I know for sure that breaking the fourth wall was Keith Giffen's gig. For the entirety of his prominent run at DC that started when he introduces the ambush bug, which is, you know, he's shortly after, you know, segues away from the Legion and does this ambush bug stuff, does this Lobo stuff, 
And in the middle of all this, he reinvigorates the Justice League. They bring back, uh, they launch out of the crisis on Infinite Earths, which we've covered, which was there to reset the DC Universe and take all of their different multiverses and, and dwindle it down to one more comprehensive storyline, uh, uh, one more comprehensive timeline, which would bring more comprehensive stories, which is funny because now they're all, it's in 2021 and beyond, all we are is about multiverses and diving way back into that. And I got to be honest, I never understood why Crisis was necessary. My early comics, my early Justice Leagues, when they meet up with Justice Society or the Legion or All-Star Squadron, it was always understood these are on different Earths. DC had Earth 2, Counter-Earth, Earth Z. Um, I got it. It's comics. They're teleporting different to different Earths. So some adventures took over there. Some took over here. They wanted to streamline it with Crisis, okay? And that's what they did. And when they came back, they wanted a new version of the Justice League. And Keith Giffen was telling those stories. And the very the first, the cover to the first spinoff Justice League post-Crisis, um, which became a hot seller really on the backs of not only the humor that Keith was providing, but the art of Kevin McGuire, who was just fresh to everyone and drew the best facial expressions, the cleanest lines. I just... Oh my gosh, Kevin McGuire hit me like a ton of bricks. He was just behind Art Adams in and in, in as as being as impactful for the uh, the kind of the late '80s, the 1987 level artist. Kevin McGuire, his expressions, the way he, the pretty faces, the small quirks and smirks that he provided were just so compelling. I I, I bought into it, hook, line, sinker, the whole the whole thing. But on the cover. The Justice League is looking right at who? You. They're looking right at you. Their arms are folded. Guy Gardner is as smarmy as possible. He's looking right at us. It is It is a series launched on a cover with a fourth wall break. Now, did characters stop and address the readers as often in Justice League? No. That was the ambush bug, the Lobo gig. But the cover in and of itself is kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. And Kevin McGuire has probably redrawn that cover based on what I can see. Hundreds, if not thousands of times, it is the go-to commission that people want from him. Oftentimes they ask him to do different teams in the same manner or different characters in that same um, eagle bird's eye shot. You know, today it would be a drone flying overhead, looking down on us as we all kind of pose and take our picture for the gram. But in this instance, it was the Justice League Cat, you know, Guy Gardner, Batman, Captain Marvel, they're all looking up at the camera. They're all looking up directly at us, uh, you know, and, and, and smirking. It's like, we're here. And they're, they're, they're addressing us. I mentioned in the uh, British Invasion podcast that Grant Morrison came on really strong with Animal Man. And at one point, Animal Man addresses us as well. He breaks the fourth wall. That's also in the 1989 realm. That's also around the same time that She-Hulk is flexing the same kind of muscles that Keith Giffen put on the map. So if we're going to give the credit, we're going to give the credit where it's due. It starts way before Deadpool. It starts way before She-Hulk. 1982 is, in fact, seven years before John Byrne does She-Hulk. So while maybe She-Hulk was becoming the most prominent person to do it at Marvel, she was by no means the first. And here's the other thing, because someone was on social media was trying to convince me that John Byrne's She-Hulk was this giant generational hit. It was not. Let me, She-Hulk was a middle seller book, middle tier. You make a lot of money in the middle. She-Hulk made a lot of money for Marvel, but it was not anywhere on the level of what was going on with the Batman titles at DC or the 
X-Men titles at Marvel, which were, you know, one, two, three, four, five in the top 10, or Spider-Man. She-Hulk was, at best, a good middle-selling comic book, but it was by no means like everyone was taking it home in their stack. Everyone, you know, was taking it home in their bundle. That was not happening. So the, I, I reject the notion that She-Hulk, um, breaking the fourth wall as she did in John Byrne's 1989 series that he, you know, authored, that that was some sort of like mega hit. It wasn't. It was out there, just like so many comics are out there, but not everybody was on board. It wasn't a top seller for Marvel Comics, okay? So again, the history lesson, you can't get beyond Keith Giffen and the profound success he had not only with Ambush Bug and with Lobo. Lobo was at one point on the charts outselling almost everything but maybe Batman for DC Comics. Lobo hit a nerve it was right around the time that Image Comics was breaking out and, 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 and blowing up. Lobo, really on the back of a seminal artist named Simon Beasley. Beasley was uh, was was he was like a, an, an amalgamation of uh, Richard Corbin, Bill Sienkiewicz, some Frank Frazetta. He definitely had a very definitive style. A lot of Bill Sienkiewicz in his line work, but uh, but man. Really potent images could paint. When he painted, it, it, the stuff looked a little more like Arthur Soydum or Richard Corbin at the time. It was really, I mean, he was he was really feeling it. And it's fun to look at those influences. And, and why is it important who did it first anyway? It's just fun. It's not important. It's just fun. And it's good to know. And, and when you know, you know, you're not part of some ridiculous notion where somebody makes a tweet yesterday going, I can't believe Marvel's going to rip off Deadpool and have She-Hulk break the fourth wall. Well, here's the deal, man. Let me break it to you. She-Hulk did break the fourth wall before Deadpool, but she by no means was the first to break it in comics and and, and make it a popular um, application. When Deadpool finally did break the fourth wall in the middle of Joe Kelly's run, I was like, oh, he's doing the Keith Giffen thing. Because again, this is now... Uh, Deadpool was designed to be a wise-ass, smart cracks. He was a smart-ass. He made jokes. The funniness of the joke depended on the funniness of the writer. It's the, still still the same. The best writer that Deadpool ever had is named Ryan Reynolds. Those are the best jokes, the best humor, the most wry kind of sensibilities. Ryan is, without a doubt, the best writer that Deadpool ever had. So when people ask me that, I just give them the honest answer. To say otherwise is just a flat-out lie. Ryan gets that salty humor right on the nose and he and he leans into the fourth wall breakage like no one I'd ever seen. But when Joe Kelly applied that to Deadpool's already established wise-ass persona, because humor was always what Deadpool was about. I pitched him as Spider-Man with, with, with swords and guns and the Spider-Man of my youth was a wise-ass. He made wisecracks. He went as Spider-Man, he always had that humor while he beat up the villains. He had gotten away from that. I covered this in my podcast. The Spider-Man of the 1990s, late 80s, everyone was trying to Dark Knight Spider-Man. Well, who, who do we Dark Knight? Who in Dark Knight? Grim, gritty. Take the, take, the, take, the, uh, take the humor away. Make it brutal. Make it real. Make it bleed. Make it gritty. And, you know, Todd was doing that with Spider-Man at the time, and there was definitely a lack of humor. Mary Jane was you know, dancing at the clubs all night. Was she going to divorce Peter? Was their marriage going to last? Was he going to be able to pay his bills? Is Craven going to kill him again? That's the theme of the Spider-Man that you were being given at the time. And definitely in the best-selling Spider-Man book, the humor was taking like not only a backseat, but I mean, it was in the trunk. 
I don't think Todd was a funny guy, and, 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 and he didn't lean into the humor of Spider-Man. He wanted to do grim and gritty, and it was within his means to do so, and it was very popular. So to, to say that it wasn't a success would be an absolute mistruth. It was a success. But the humor took a back seat because, in, in truth, the Peter Parker that had the wise-ass humor was a teenager. Now he's middle-aged. The, the, the Peter Parker, the Spider-Man that Todd McFarlane is depicting in his best-selling Spider-Man run, is more of a conflicted middle-aged man. So maybe the humor isn't there. Not so different than the Peter Parker that wanders into, into the multiverse in that outstanding Spider-Man movie where, 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 where you know he shows up middle-aged and out of shape and kind of not feeling it. And again, that's kind of the sensibility that was going on in the best-selling Spider-Man book at the time. But Deadpool, I felt that there was a there was a, a, a an opportunity to seize some real estate that Spider-Man was giving up and make him kind of the smartass, make him the guy that makes the wisecracks. And in New Mutants '98, he is. In X-Force Two, he is. He makes a joke in his cameo appearance in X-Force Four. You know when he grabs Black Tom Cassidy in the elevator shaft and it's like, ugh. Stop bleeding on me. It's always a little bit of a wise acre, a wise crack. But then Joe Kelly decides, let's go in full bore, full bore and have him break the fourth wall and start talking to the audience and start referencing that the audience is here and it's with him and it's part of the experience. And the minute he did that, I was like, oh, we're keep giving it because now you're in Lobo territory. Now you're in ambush bug territory. And of course, yes, you are absolutely in She-Hulk territory. So all of these things broke the fourth wall far before Deadpool ever did. So giving credit where credit is due, you know, put it where it belongs with Cerebus, with Howard the Duck, with Ambush Bug, the biggest of the mainstream fourth wall breakage, you know, fourth wall, you know, comic book heroes, with Lobo. Oh my gosh. Lobo was just insane. Maybe one of my favorite of the fourth wall break characters. She-Hulk was clever. John Byrne really had a flair for it. Nothing but praise for all these guys, but let's put them in the order they belong. Let's give them the respect they deserve. And by all means, you know, She-Hulk did it before Deadpool, but did it after Ambush Bug and so many others. And so, so, so again, finding out who came first is just, it's just fun. It's just fun. It's like, it's like knowing that Christopher Nolan is influenced by Stanley Kubrick and by Alfred Hitchcock. Because he is. And it's fun to watch and go, ooh, that's Nolan's leaning into that Kubrick type shot, okay? And and uh, and and it, it, it's just it's just fun knowing that he's visiting territory that was already established, you know, by someone else. And uh, and 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 that's 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 kind of the beauty of 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 watching the cues and watching the influence. But it doesn't mean, doesn't mean one is better than the other. I mean, musicians borrow riffs, borrow the R&B industry is based up on sampling popular music across all spectrum, whether it's rock and roll. I mean, every time the Doobie Brothers come on with their, you know, keep forgetting I'm not in love with you anymore song, I'm inclined to think how many times that's been used in various rap music and in rap platforms. I mean, so much of the yacht rock that has become so popular is is prevalent in so many R&B tunes. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's funny how how liberal it's shared in music, and maybe there's some payments that go along with it. But in comic books, this this desire to uh, to plant a flag and be the know-it-all who says, "How dare She-Hulk rip off Deadpool?" Well, you got that wrong. 
You got that wrong. And not and and and, and but it doesn't end with She-Hulk. Let's let's establish how further back it goes. Like I said, the Joker turns and breaks the fourth wall in the 1970s in Detective Comics. So you can give it to Joker, you can give it to Howard the Duck, you can give it to Cerebus, you can give it to Ambush Book, you can give it to Lobo. They all got there before Deadpool. So so it's not just She-Hulk. But it's just it's just fun. It's just fun knowing the history of these things. And my passion just led me to consume and collect as many comic books as I possibly could as a, through my youth and into my adult life. And that's why I share this with you guys because I want you to know because, again, like that old NBC, you know, bumper that they used to play in the Saturday morning block. The more you know, okay? The more you know because why not? Why not know more? Why not be more enlightened? So so we've caught, capped that off and definitively answered the fourth wall question. I'm going to finish today off with a little... Because people, people like... They like lists and they like, you know, knowing what's what and who's who and what's your favorite. I'm going to talk today about, because the Spider-Man, who who my top Spider-Man artists and creators created quite the stir. And then my Mount Rushmore of talents created quite the stir. Well, I'm going to lean in all the way today and uh, cover comic books, possibly best, most popular character over the last 40 years. And uh, that would be the Wolverine, Mister Wolverine. Who are my top Wolverines? Wolverine's moniker is, "I'm the best there is at what I do, and what I do isn't very nice or isn't very pretty." Okay, those those are two different tags. He always kind of that was his '80s tagline: "I'm the best there is at what I do." Dot dot dot. And what I do isn't very nice, and it's implying to killing and or hurting people. Wolverine, as we've covered before, was introduced in the Hulk as the uh, Canadian weapon that was to drive Hulk off the land and out of the forest in the Canadian territories. He would then be implemented in Giant Size X-Men number one to be part of the new X-Men launch that was going to appeal to a larger, broader international audience. He would represent the Canadians. And uh, under the early issues of Uncanny X-Men as it was finding its way uh, and 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 uh, Dave Cockrum and Chris Claremont didn't have as much love for Wolverine. Dave Cockrum's love was for Nightcrawler and Colossus. Then John Byrne comes along. He's actually Canadian. He's from Canada. He makes no bones about it in all his interviews that he wants to definitively make Wolverine the most interesting character, the most popular character in the book. He pours much more of his focus into that character. John Byrne, by the way, draws maybe, I got to tell you, one of the best Nightcrawlers I've ever seen. So it's not like he left Nightcrawler you know, behind. John did beautiful renditions, mysterious, eerie renditions of Nightcrawler and Colossus as well. But when it, come to, when it came to Wolverine, he gave him a little extra love, a little extra snarl, snarl, a little extra grit, a little extra growl. He, 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 he definitely wanted to put the focus, and his instincts were right. People like myself responded more to Wolverine than they did to Nightcrawler. I like a whimsical elf as much as the next person. And that's kind of how Nightcrawler was portrayed. But I like the grim and the gritty and the tortured soul that Wolverine was. As far as depicting Wolverine and the way that he looked, John Byrne would do would, would, would have such a profound effect in, in regards to depicting Wolverine that would have it it that it it affected, it absolutely affected and impacted every rendition of him that followed. You don't get to the Wolverine that I draw today. Without John Byrne, you don't get to whoever is drawing a popular rendition. I see John Byrne's Wolverine all over Adam Kubert. Adam Kubert has been drawing fantastic renditions of Wolverine for 30 years. 
He did a celebrated run on the book in the 90s. Some amazing Wolverine issues. I mean, Adam Kubert is one of those unheralded, uncelebrated master draftsmen, craftsmen, artists that uh, everything he does is gorgeous, is beautiful, is polished. And he did a new Wolverine launch, I believe with Benjamin Percy earlier or about, about a year ago. And again, when I see uh, Wolverine in the mask, as as drawn by somebody in modern day like Adam Kubert, I see the John Byrne influence. He would tell you, absolutely, he would he would completely cop to it. I would cop to it. Most everybody would cop. To it. Jim Lee would cop to it. John Byrne had a very distinct look. And among us artists, I'm going to tell you right now, we would gather at shows and we would talk, whether it was in hotel rooms, at bars, at restaurants, everywhere that we migrated. Todd McFarlane did a great uh, a great Wolverine. It was totally based on John Byrne. We would talk. And literally, in the 80s and 90s, the way that you became popular was if you drew a cool John Byrne. I won't mention the numerous guys that drew, I mean, <laughs> drew a cool Wolverine, not a cool John Byrne. The way to popularity was drawing a cool Wolverine. And the, the roadmap to that ran through John Byrne. He gave extra hair on the arms. He gave him that extra growl, that extra snarl. Like I said, the, the furrowed brows. There was just a way that he designed that mask. There were plenty of guys who were not, even including people who were drawing Wolverine. There was a long stretch where one of the guys who I consider one of the worst Wolverine artists of all time, one of the reasons that it the book suffered so much was just did not draw a good Wolverine. Really Especially the masked version of Wolverine was really off. But uh, the guys who did Wolverine well would have the hearts and minds of the fans. They, they just did. And uh, if you did a great Wolverine, you'd hear about it. The fans would let you know. That's why I wanted to draw Wolverine so bad in the New Mutants. Not only was he super popular, I knew I could do a kick-ass rendition of him. I did a what-if issue with Wolverine. What if number seven, when they relaunched the title in 1989, what if number seven... What if Wolverine was an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Um, huge, hugely successful comic. That really helped my transition from Hawk and Dove over to Marvel, having done this one if. And people really responded. And I was told just how much people love my rendition of Wolverine. Well, I had hoped so because I was following the roadmap. I was trying to adhere to all of the artistic cues that John Byrne established. The guy who picked up the baton next from John Byrne that had the biggest impact on Wolverine is Arthur Adams. When Arthur Adams broke into the scene and started drawing the X-Men in 1985 in the publication of the X-Men annuals and then later the classic X-Men covers, oh my gosh, it was a tighter version of what John Byrne did. He, he had all the John Byrne-isms, but he kind of tightened it and everything about um, Art Adams, especially early on, everyone was kind of starched. I say that not as a criticism because I adopted that starched look. Guys like Tim Sale, who I have nothing but immense respect for, when I actually got to know Tim Sale in the mid in the in the mid seventies, he's like, "Your pants have too many wrinkles. Every everyone looks like they're they're they, you know, everything's so tight on them." And I'm like, "Yeah, that was me trying to do, uh, depict things the way I enjoyed seeing Arthur Adams do them. You don't depict stuff that you don't like. You naturally just filter in influences that you want to exhibit in your own work and with." Arthur, that's what I was doing. I was exhibiting what he was putting forth in his work and my work. And he had really, whether it was Colossus, 
or with Wolverine, he had kind of taken the John Byrne model sheet and maybe uh, thickened Wolverine up a little, but especially in regards to the mask and the face mask, he was not looking at anyone else but John Byrne. It was very much a John Byrne mask. The John Byrne Wolverine that everyone celebrates, that everyone goes ape shit for, is the Wolverine that he begins to depict in the uh, in the Hellfire Club issues. You know, uh, uh, X Men circa one thirty two through one forty two. You know, all the way through Days of Future Past. But issues one thirty nine, one forty, when he goes to battle the Wendigo and teams up with his former Alpha Flight members. Those are seminal issues. Those pages go for in gigantic dollars. I have some. I know how hard it was to scrape and fight to obtain them. And they are not leaving my collection. But I have pages from the Windigo. I have pages from the Hellfire Club. That is when it's just, it was such an amazing depiction of Wolverine. So much so that I think when, uh, I know when John when Jim Lee went to draw uh, Batman Dark Knight, he kind of applied a Wolverine sensibility to, to Batman's mask. He kind of put that on top of the Frank Miller sensibility that he was adopting when he was drawing Batman. Because, again, we've covered Dark Knight was hugely successful. So my number one is John Byrne. My number two is Art Adams. Because Art Adams kind of did a did a heightened version, a more amplified version of what, uh, of what John did. And if, if there was growls and snarls in John's art, made them tighter and made them even more creased. His mouth, his teeth, his growl, his snarl. People tell me I draw clenched teeth uh, characters all the time. And I'm like, so you didn't look at any of John Byrne's X-Men where everyone's clenching their teeth, whether it's Sebastian Shaw in the Hellfire Club, whether it's Cyclops, like every other page as he's getting mad at his own teammates or the villains or Wolverine or Wolverine himself. Clenched teeth, constipated look on the face. That is part and parcel of what we do here at Comic Book Central, Okay. And that's what we do. And that's what sold books. And to do a good Wolverine uh, is, is, what, um, is what transcended. And when Todd did his Wolverine versus Hulk issue of the Hulk, which is one of my favorite issues he's ever done, you know, Todd's like, oh yeah, I was doing Todd. I was, I was doing John, John Byrne, Art Adams. Jim Lee would tell you that he was doing John Byrne and Art Adams. If Jim Lee doesn't do a good Wolverine, his X-Men run doesn't have the same success. Period. End of story. Full stop. The... Uh, Drawing Wolverine, drawing him cool, was your ticket to more success in the comic book world. And uh, and so many so many of us went out of our way to show that we could do a cool Wolverine. When when Eric Larson did Marvel Comics Presents in the early 90s, he teamed up Spider-Man with Wolverine, and I think a three or a four-parter, three-parter. Uh, he drew a badass Wolverine. Every one of the image guys stepped up. Silvestri... Wolverine, I mean, Silvestri, Lee, Portacio, we all did really cool Wolverines that adhered to the tenets established by Byrne and Adams. But what about when he takes his mask off? Well, that's where we get to the rest of the list. And that starts with Frank Miller. John Byrne did a great Logan. Fantastic. Really, uh, again, one of the few guys that did a, as good a Logan as he did a mast. Some guys only do the mast or the it, it, good, and they don't do the Logan, or they do the Logan great and not the mask. It's weird. This is my own opinion. You're listening to an opinion show, Rob Observations. That's my opinion. Frank Miller is one of those guys who did a far better Logan than I think he did a Wolverine. He did a good Wolverine. Wolverine with the mask is good. But look at the covers to the Wolverine miniseries. They're all of Logan, the full hair, and they're amazing. 
His Wolverine was feral, savage, little Clint Eastwood in there. Um, loved the way he depicted Logan. And he is basically depicted as, as Logan, like, Logan like 75% of the time in Frank Miller's miniseries. And uh, his, his Logan also was a little taller, but not as short and squat and stout as John Burns, but no less fierce and, uh, and savage. And again, those are the elements that people want. I, I would see people draw Wolverine in the mid-80s and look like a guy who put on a suit at Kmart and walked out. He didn't stand uh, like Wolverine. He didn't posture and gesture like Wolverine. Again, we learned, we learned. John Byrne established another guy, Paul Smith, I would put as like my fourth after Frank Miller because he followed Frank. The miniseries leads right into Paul Smith's run where he's going to marry Mariko and battle Silver Samurai and the Viper. And oh, Paul Smith uh, drew an amazing Wolverine. Maybe the first hints of what we were going to get with Art Adams because you could tell Paul was constructing his Wolverine the in the manner that he would depict and adapt John Burns. But they were very similar precepts, very similar, you know, approaches uh, to, to, to the character, the fundamental look of the character. His Logan, I felt, was more Frank Miller and his Wolverine in full costume, face mask, was more John Byrne, but no less impactful. And Paul Smith had his own tweaks and his own style. And maybe even Paul Smith informs a little of how Art Adams depicts him. But John Byrne, Art Adams, Frank Miller, Paul Smith, there's one more. And in that, you get the modern, the, with this last name, we have wrapped up where you get all the rest of ours, where I draw my Wolverine from, where Jim Lee draws his Wolverine from, where Mark Silvestri draws his Wolverine from. And if you didn't before, you did now. You've adapted, you've changed. And that is with Barry Windsor Smith. I mentioned Barry Smith in our Sword and Sorcery episode, he was the guy that got hired to do Conan because he was cheaper than John Buscema. He fit the budget. Stan Lee thought, we can't risk our big name guys on, on Conan because we're paying a licensing fee. So we got to get somebody that fits the budget. And that's where Barry Smith made his name. And the reason Barry Smith eventually left Conan is because he was more illustrated in the uh, more detailed illustrations and renderings than a monthly comic book could possibly carry. He kind of... Uh, he, he, he came back and did Red Nails, an, an, an adaptation of a famous Conan tale, and it is kind of seen as the single best Conan story ever depicted. Buried just the rocks, the trees, the leaves, the bark on the tree. He rendered everything, and, his, and the stippling and the style that he put forward on Conan was just magnificent. He then exits comics, and he goes into illustration. He becomes part of the studio. They have a magnificent book I recommend you buy. It's called The Studio. It features... Plates and work and illustrations by Bernie Wrightson, Michael Kaluta, Jeffrey Jones, and Barry Windsor Smith. They all shared at one point a studio in New York. And they made magnificent works, magnificent illustrations. And Barry Windsor Smith pushed the envelope and became an even more advanced, heightened version of himself that left Conan behind. He comes back inking and embellishing one of his good friends, Herb Trimp, when Herb does the Machine Man uh, reboot. And then pencils and inks the last issue. And then starts doing X-Men fill-ins. He did two different uh, chapters called Life Death. Uh, there's two different Life Death installments that he did with Chris Claremont in the X-Men, which are very focused on Storm. And it showed just how beautiful and, 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 and enhanced 
Barry Windsor Smith art had become. There, there, are, there are elements of Picasso, Michelangelo. He was really going beyond any sort of comic book influence that he, that he had had prior, which really was so much informed by Kirby when he first started out. So much so that he was seen as a Kirby clone. And maybe that moniker, maybe it was just one person that said that to him, that had him change and alter his style and go in this different direction. His anatomy, the human figure, it was literally out of Bridgman, Picasso, Michelangelo. Those were the that was the predominant like visual cues that you were seeing from Barry Windsor Smith's style. He comes on and then he does an isolated issue of the X-Men beyond the life death, which are just beautiful. I mean, there's an there's a there's a splash page with Storm sleeping in the bed where she is covered by the sheets and the sheets are contoured to her body and all the wrinkles and the folds. And it is one of the most magnificent drawings I've ever seen, comic book or no comic book. It, it, I've stared at it a million times. If you were to attempt to, 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 to depict it, everyone would go, that's that Barry Windsor Smith shot. It's that iconic. So he wasn't, he was kind of a, he was more of a very art, 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 artistic depiction and just beautiful rendering in these storm-focused um, storm issues of the X-Men. But then he did one issue where Wolverine battles the, the Reavers, these uh, kind of techno-armed uh, mutant hunters. And uh, it's magnificent. It was a hint of what was to come. It was savage. It was poetic. He was definitely influenced by not only Frank Miller's style of storytelling, but Paul, Paul Smith was doing the uh, very much elongated uh, stack of panels, um, widescreen panels depicting moment-by-moment -moment action. Frank Miller popularized this modern approach in Daredevil and Wolverine, where you know it's like clicks of the camera are going by as you're watching swing right, swing left, duck, punch up, punch down. It's very cinematic. Barry Windsor Smith applies his own very uh, you know distinct rendering style onto that storytelling and that figure drawing. And it just, whoa, everybody was blown away by that single issue of X-Men. Well, then lo and behold, in 1990, he is, convinces Marvel that he can tell the story, the, the early origin of Wolverine, which hadn't been depicted yet, and the story of Weapon X. And it was broken up into uh, segmented serialization in Marvel Comics Presents. And he depicts the story of Weapon X and what happened to Logan and the experimentation and the, uh, the, 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 the programming he was given and the, and the, you know, the practice of, of, of the programming and when they would release him into the tundra to, to take down a bear. Or it, it, it's, it's, it's startlingly amazing. It's, it's got all of his signature rendering, except he's pushing the rendering into an entire new realm, a realm that we would all bite on. All the image guys would bite on this rendering because it was so state-of-the-art. It belongs to Barry Windsor Smith. He is the author, uh, the auteur behind this very specific style of rendering. But his Wolverine, his Logan, he only depicts Logan in this because there is no Wolverine mask. That That's much later in his history. But his Logan is like, harkens back to the Conan work in terms of this savage, barbaric figure. But it's got all this beautiful... Again, Michelangelo, Picasso, George Bridgman rendering, Andrew Loomis, who did an entire anatomy book that everyone is recommended to um, try out before they break into comic books. And it's got this lush rendering, but the face of Wolverine and the way that he depicts the mane of hair, it was almost like he was becoming more of like a lion. The hair was thicker, longer. It went down his neck, the back of his 
You know, it went, it went further down his back. It was longer hair. It was curlier hair. It was more strung out. It, it, it's phenomenal. It's savage. Um, it's, it's, in, it's, it's incredibly compelling in, in the depiction, in its depiction of Logan, feral. I would use feral and savage along with noble and sad. And it, and, and it was it hit everybody like a ton of bricks. We only got eight pages of it every other week, because or, or or weekly, and uh, depending on Marvel Comics Presents distribution. But man, did we all gobble it up! And then it was collected in a graphic novel, and it became a bestseller. And Barry Windsor Smith etched himself into the history books, not only by depicting the history of Logan, by by but by his physical depiction of Wolverine slash Logan. And everybody changed the way they were depicting Wolverine after that. So Barry Windsor Smith, with Weapon X, cemented himself. It goes John Byrne, it goes Art Adams, it goes Frank Miller, it goes Paul Smith, Barry Windsor Smith. In those five influences, you have everyone's modern-day Wolverine. I have not seen anyone add to the mythos. I can point to you exact panels that I have done, that Todd McFarlane has done, that Jim Lee have done, and go, that's where we're looking at Barry Windsor Smith. It's that noticeable. It's that impactful. And then I can also point and go, that's where we're doing John Byrne and Art Adams. The template, the modern template, was established for Wolverine by 1990 and everybody that had come before. And on the same day that we established where the fourth wall breakage comes from, we've established where the look of the modern day Wolverine comes from. When I see people wander from that template and they don't include one of those top five, it's not the same, and I have, I have seen no one add to the depiction and take away from the previous renderings that have established the most popular look of comic book's most popular character. And again, you know, I drew a Wolverine on the cover of my latest X-Men issue, uh, X-Men cover, X-Men number one that came out, and I did a Wolverine, I did an X-Men cover, and my focus was Wolverine, because why not? I did an X-Men legacy cover. These are all these Deadpool 30th anniversary covers. I did Wolverine on an X-Force cover, I did Wolverine on an X-Men legacy cover, and I did Wolverine on this X-Men cover. And in each one, I know exactly where I swerved into Byrne territory or in Art, into Art Adams territory or into Barry Windsor Smith territory. And people are like, oh man, I see the John Byrne. I see the Art Adams. Of course you do. I'm not hiding it. I've shown it in color. I've shown it in line art. It's fun to acknowledge and maybe try and push, maybe get the bigger growl here, but I'm not going to go beyond the masters that established the look. I'm just going to adhere as close as I possibly can to it. And in the same manner that Todd said in regards to Art Adams, who was only doing two books a month, two, I'm sorry, <laughs> two books a year at his peak, I have an entire Art Adams podcast that talks about, you know, building a legacy, building a body of work. And Art Adams in 1985 had his biggest run ever, which was, you know, it was eight, it was it was eight total published issues, but two of those were, three of those were giant-sized. So you can take each of those three, double them, you get six instead of three out of those. And instead of eight, you get 11. 11 issues worth of work that Art Adams put together between 1985, in the year of 1985. He started working on them years earlier. He had pages in 1983 that he was showing people of long shot. That body of work impacted an entire generation. Myself, Todd, Jim, all of us, everybody that followed. And in the same manner that Todd would posit that, uh, that you know, well, well but if, if, if we give you Art Adams monthly, 
then the kids will eat it up. They'll eat it up. Right now, Art Adam shows up twice a year. But if we give it to him monthly, I, I uh, present to you that when we are giving you the Wolverines that reflect the best of John Byrne and Art Adams and Barry Windsor Smith and Paul Smith and Frank Miller, then, then we are giving you Wolverine of a bygone era because they're not really predict they're not really depicting Wolverine for you anymore. So when we do it, we're just picking up the mantle that they established and we're carrying it right back to you. And it's a blast and it's a pleasure and it excites me and I'm thrilled to do it and I'm so grateful that I get to do it. Almost as grateful as I am that you listen to this show and I am so thankful that you hang with me each and every single installment. Thank you for spreading the word. Thank you for uh, putting the word out there about Rob observations and telling your friends and expanding the audience. If you could go ahead and leave um, reviews, uh, they help the show so much. And uh, in fact, I am going to read uh, the latest reviews that, that have been uh, left for observations because when you guys leave them, I read them at the end of it every show. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for stepping up. Thank you for taking that time to write that and file that because it helps. It helps immensely. And right now I'm going to read to you the latest um, review of Rob observation left by you guys, which I am so excited and so thrilled to share with you. So here we go with the latest, greatest uh, review. Again, you guys, thank you so much for leaving these. This is from Knuckleboy. I love that name, Knuckleboy, also known as, he signed his name, Rob Roland. Rob Roland, Knuckleboy. Thank you so much. You write, Rob Liefeld is the Professor X of the comic book, you. Thank you, sir. Had to write to say how awesome your podcasts are. The history lessons are priceless and the peak behind the curtain you provide is thrilling. Over a long road trip, I consume four episodes and shortly I'll be ordering my very own copy of 1976's Superman vs. Spider-Man. What a great ride you are taking us all on. Thank you, Rob Roland, Knuckleboy. Thank you for that review. You guys, when you leave reviews for me, I will read them on the air at the end of every episode. Thank you so much for, again, um, getting it out there. When I returned from my hiatus and to do this second season, you know, people said, Rob, encourage the reviews and the feedback because it helps um, spread the word and, the pl- and, and, and increase the platform. And again, guys, thank you so much for hanging with me. It is, it is, I am so humbled that you guys spend time with me. You can find me on social media. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld, the full name, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, at Robert Liefeld with the blue check. That's really me. I love hanging with you guys. I love talking to you guys. I am on Instagram, at Rob Liefeld. Just shorter version, at Rob Liefeld. I was able to secure my name back way back when on that platform. Again, blue check. It's really me. Thank you for your comments that you always leave on, on whatever I post and your feedback. I appreciate it so much. I'm all over Facebook. I'm in multiple groups. I'm all over social media. I love talking to you guys. I love interacting. I love that we can talk the craft, the comic, the passion, all of it. Thank you so very much. You guys, we are going to be get back again next time with an with even more comic book loaded material to discuss. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You know the drill. You are going to take care of yourselves. You're going to stay safe. And we are going to talk again real soon. 